0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Today we're going to look at a topic of discussion that's vitally important because it's taught all throughout Scripture. And at the same time, it's a doctrine historically for 2,000 years that has been very confusing for some, highly debated in the church, all throughout church history, even today highly debated. So all we want to do is go to see what the Word of God has to say about this great doctrine of election. We're not going to do it exhaustively. I'm not going to answer all of your questions, but again, the goal and the point of this summer series is to talk about the main issues of clarity regarding what the Bible has to say about any one of these given topics. So that's what I was trying to do on the topic of election is just get it out on the table with some clarity, basic definition, clear biblical examples and precedents. And a lot of the other stuff maybe you can study on your own. It's a lifelong process, by the way, especially regarding this topic. A lot of these topics uh, might prompt you to think, well, what is the practical application? Like if I go for 45, 50 minutes today about elections, some of you by nature will say, well, what's the practical application of this? As a matter of fact, some Christians, that's their first question after any sermon they hear. So how do I apply this? What's the practical application? Here's my answer to you. This is this is true of every sermon you hear. I don't care if it had ninety two steps to do this or if it was just a theological dissertation. The practical application is to believe it. That's the practical application. And I'm not being facetious. I'm I'm serious. Insofar it is consistent with God's truth, believe it. That is the practical application. And the benefits are countless that will flow from that one practical application. Believe it. What will that do? Well, Jesus said, know the truth, believe the truth, be informed with the truth, embrace the truth, and the truth will set you free. What greater practical application is there than that? There isn't one. So you hear truth, and on election, how do I apply this? You apply it by believing it then guess what's going to happen? You take it in. You believe it. And what's going to happen as a result is God is going to transform your mind in the way you think. And here are some of the benefits. If you believe it, it will inform your conscience. Truth will inform your conscience, which will help you grow as a Christian. Truth will regulate your worldview. If you believe it, that truth you heard will regulate, regulate your worldview. If you hear the truth today and you believe it, it will recalibrate your paradigm of meditation and the way you think on a regular, ongoing basis. And then finally, if you hear it and believe it, you will allow those truths to control your thinking. Inevitably, your thinking will catch up with your emotions and your day-to-day living, the fruits of your life, your whole attitude. So that's the practical application of election and in every other sermon that you hear that's a biblical sermon when you're giving and given biblical truth. Know the truth, the truth will set you free. I came up with nine highlights of election. I'm going to emphasize eight of them. Let's go ahead and look at it. Some of you may have strong convictions about what you believe election is. Some of you may be confused about it. Some of you may have never studied it before in your life. That's all right. That's why we're doing this. But I believe that the doctrine of election is one of the most important doctrines and truths in Scripture because, like I said, I believe it's all over. It's from Genesis to Revelation. It is not a tangential, secondary topic at all. It is at the rock bed core of who God is and His plan for salvation for sinners. So let's go ahead and look at those nine truths about election. First, we're going to start with number one, and that is the definition of election. And here's where the discussion frequently goes awry and becomes a needless debate because people don't have their terms defined correctly, and then you're actually arguing about caricatures and not reality. That is a problem that's true with just about anything. So let's make sure we got the definition correct. Insofar as I believe this is a biblical definition, a more theological, complicated, complex one with a lot of run-on sentence. Yeah, it's basically run-on sentence. Then we got a short one. So let's look at the first definition of election. It is the act or decree of God before creation. That's important. Before creation, before humanity was ever around, the act or decree of God before creation, in which God chooses. God freely chooses, sovereignly chooses, some people to be saved. Most often, terms of election refer to the salvation of someone. But but election goes beyond that, beyond salvation. It also refers to a special choosing and electing of other beings for special purposes. So the act or decree of God before creation in which God chooses some people to be saved or some other holy purpose. Not on account of any Foreseen merit in them. Saved Christ. Alone, we'll talk about that. He was elect. And He was nothing but holy. Not on account of any foreseen merit in them, that is the angels and men, but only because of God's sovereign mercy and good pleasure. Well, simplify the definition. Election is simply what God chooses to do before He does it. What God chooses to do before He does it. Simpler way to say it. That is election. Election. That is the definition of election. Let's go on to number two, the distortion of election. There have been abuses of election all throughout church history. There are many that are proliferated today. Many of these are by Christians who have very good intentions. Many of these are by Christians who are committed to the Word of God, the Bible. But there are distortions, and that convolutes the issue, so let's bring some clarity to it and be simple and just, just do what the Bible has to say. What are these distortions of election? This isn't in your notes, but I first want you to know, for those of you that want to go a little deeper, for the record, supra lapsarianism and infra lapsarianism are not in the Bible. That's all there is to it. All these fictitious man made decrees and the order of those decrees, not in the Bible. Uh, so for me, it's futile. If you want to come up and ask me and debate and all that, I won't. I'd be very boring and say, well, it's not in the Bible. I really don't have anything to say. But some people believe those things and they think they're important. But the distortion of election, what election is not? Number Letter A, it is not fatalism. It's not fatalism. What I mean by that is it's not determinism. In other words, some people believe and have taught or understand wrongly that biblical election says that God knows everything and God does everything and God chooses everything for you. Therefore, we don't have any choices. We don't have any real choices at all in life. Everything we do, say, think is predetermined. God determined everything we would do, think, and say before the foundation of the world. So we're really just nothing more than robots. That is not true. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is very clear that human beings, every single one of them, made in the image of God, are responsible before God, accountable to God. And also, God gives all these uh, pleads with people to come to Him. Woe to Him who is hungry. Uh, Jesus did the same thing, calling people, weeping over people, praying for people. The rich young ruler he he, uh, called the rich young ruler to himself. The rich young ruler walked away in basic unbelief and it says that Jesus sorrowed in his heart for the rich young ruler because Jesus loved him. That's what it says in Mark. So it's not fatalism or determinism. Election has nothing to do with believing that God makes us do everything. What else is it not? Election is not not hyper-Calvinism. Calvin was a great man of God. Calvin was one of the greatest Bible teachers in terms of the Scripture and exegetically, expositionally throughout church history. He's amazing. And Calvin believed in election. He believed in biblical election for the most part. But over time, some people have taken some of Calvin's teachings to unnecessary extremes in different ways. And some, the most common one is that people conclude... uh, by hyper-Calvinism, that means going beyond what Calvin taught regarding election. They believe in election so much that they just totally dismiss the possibility. They believe that only the elect are saved, therefore we should only evangelize and call the elect to repentance. Or that the gospel call isn't a genuine call to people who are not elected. I don't know who's elect in this room. There's about 100 people. I don't know who is elect. Some are, some probably are not. So they would say it's not legitimate for me to give a gospel presentation to everybody here because not everybody is elect. Therefore, the presentation is not legitimate or sincere because the non-elect, they couldn't believe it anyway. So it's a waste of time and worthless. That's hyper-Calvinism. The Bible doesn't teach that. Another one um, that I want to add is under hyper-Calvinism is that election is not double predestination. According to the Bible, election says that before the foundation of the world... God set His love on some and determined that He would rescue them and save them through Jesus Christ in history. He made that decision in the past, in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, and He decided to sovereignly choose some to rescue them from their sins, from hell, from Satan, from death. He chose some. That's what the Bible teaches about election. Some people logically conclude, therefore... That if God sovereignly chose some, then He didn't choose others. Therefore, since He didn't choose others to be elect, those that He didn't choose, He actually by default chose them to go to hell. That's double predestination. The idea that God before the foundation of the world chose some to be saved and the idea that before the foundation of the world in eternity past, God specifically chose some to go to hell. I I would say that is not taught in Scripture. I don't know of one Bible verse that teaches that. Some people try to use Romans 9. Every time I examine what they're teaching, they don't deal with the details specifically of Romans 9, and we're going to look at that. Scripture is clear. When it talks about election and uses the words of election, whether it's foreknowledge, predestination, calling, chosen, it is always in a positive light. It is always referring to those that God will save. It is always referring to those that God wants to bless. It is always mentioned and given to the church and believers as a source of encouragement to let them know they are secure in God's love. It is never given in the context of God shaking His finger at somebody in damnation towards them. Never. That's not the context. Election is supposed to be an encouraging doctrine for the saints. Romans 8. That's what the whole chapter is about. So it's not... Double predestination. R.C. Sproul believes it is double predestination. And I read his essay. And he didn't use one Bible verse to prove it. And he says about three times that we must depend on human logic to establish double predestination. Human logic. Ooh, that's dangerous. That is No, we must depend only on Scripture and Scripture alone. We're going to talk about that regarding this doctrine. Uh, inevitably, the question is raised, though, that, boy, if God before the foundation of the world chose some, selected some, elected some to be saved, and didn't elect or select others, then those people who were not chosen, who are not elect, are going to go to hell, and they're going to go to hell against their will because it was God's will, because God didn't elect them. That is natural human logic. I understand that thinking. But that is not taught in the Bible. So I just want to address the question real quick in light of this. To answer this question very simply is... Why do people go to hell? Now, if you ask somebody who believed in double predestination and was consistent, and they believed that before the foundation of the world, God selected some people and said, I want that person to go to hell. You would think that would be taught in the Bible. And if you pose the question to them, why do people go to hell? Their ultimate answer would have to be because before the foundation of the world, God elected and selected that person to go to hell. The problem is you can't find that anywhere in Scripture. But in answering the question, why do people go to hell, is there a clear biblical answer? Absolutely. It's simple. This is Sunday school material. So here's the answer. Why do people go to hell? This is what God has revealed to us. Number one, people go to hell because of sin. Romans 3.23 The wages of sin is death. First and foremost, the word for death in the Bible means separation. It means separation from God. And it could be separation physically, Separation in terms of a relationship with, her, with Him and also separation eternally in eternal hell. As a matter of fact, eternal hell in the book of Revelation is called the lake of fire, the second death. So death means separation from God in three different ways. So why do people go to hell? The eternal death. The wages of sin is debt. Simple answer. Why do people go to hell? Because of sin. I can't think of a verse that it says uh, somebody went to hell because God chose them before the foundation of the world to decide to send them to hell. I don't even know if I want to worship that kind of a God. Why else do people go to hell? Well, actually, there's another reason. Jesus gave it for the revelation. John 3.18, after that great John 3.16, verse, uh, Jesus said this in John 3.18. And actually, I want to read that. If you got your Bible, let's go there, because it's so important. This answers the question, why do people go to hell? He gives the gospel, or the the essence of the gospel, God so loved the world, that God gave, He loved the world. If you believed in predestination or some hyper form of Calvinism, you'd have to say, for God so loved the elect, right? Doesn't say that. God loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever. Now there's the elect in John 3.16. The elect in John 3.16 is not in the world. The elect is in whosoever. Believes, Those are the elect. Whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. Here it is, verse 18, why people go to hell. He who believes in Jesus, in Christ, in Him, is not judged, will not be condemned, will not go to hell. If you believe in Christ legitimately, you will not go to hell. Clear. He who does not believe in Christ, in the Gospel has been judged already, has been condemned already, will go to hell. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Anybody who goes to hell is there because it is deserved, because they willfully, knowingly rejected Jesus Christ and God's solution for sin of humanity. Those are the two reasons of why people go to hell. Sin and rejecting willingly, knowingly the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, what else is not election? How else is it distorted? Well, uh, letter C, it is not the gospel. It is not the gospel. Some people get so excited about election, especially when they first learn about it, and it is eye-opening, and it's a very encouraging, amazing revelation of a doctrine. I know, I remember where I was 19 years ago, precisely as I was mopping the floor at 2.30 in the morning, listening to Bible tapes on Romans 9, when I first heard of a clear teaching on the doctrine of election, in My I, I was already a Christian. It was life-changing for me. It was amazing. Some Christians get overexcited about it in terms of what they require and demand of other people. Now that they believe it and understand it, they require everybody else to believe it and understand it to the same degree. Even unbelievers and even new baby Christians and they even try to incorporate it in the, the Gospel. Christians trying to say that you've got to believe in election in order to be saved. That is not true. That is not true. As a matter of fact, I would say that an unbeliever doesn't even have the ability to believe an election. It is totally impossible. No human being would make up this doctrine. That's how supernatural, mysterious, and unhuman it is. This is special revelation from God. We would know nothing about election. I wouldn't even believe an election had it not been for the teaching of the Bible and the Holy Spirit who has impressed it upon my heart and opened my eyes to understand it. Election is not the gospel. Look at all the gospel presentations from the apostles and Jesus telling them to go infiltrate, share the gospel with the world. They never mention election as part of the content of what we're supposed to be telling unbelievers. All you're going to do is confuse them. The gospel's simple, 1 Corinthians 15. It's about Jesus Christ. Jesus God-man from all eternity, willingly came down here, assumed a human body, lived a perfect life, uh, bypassed a sin nature like no other, lived 33 years of perfect life, willingly went on the cross, died on the cross, absorbed the wrath of God for the sin of the world in His own body as the God-man, died as the substitute of sinners, of anyone who would believe in Him, call on Him, repent of their sins, trust in Him, call Him Lord, cry out to Him to be saved, then He was buried, rose again from the dead, ascended on high, reigns as Lord of Lord and King of kings today, and is still a willing Savior for any who would put their trust in Him. That is the Gospel. I didn't hear anything about election in there. That is the Gospel message. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, you need to embrace that message to have your sins forgiven, to know you have a home in heaven. What else is... Election, not. That's letter D. It is not. This, by the way, this is the most common view of Christians in my experience. So, in American Christianity, in Bay Area Christianity, hopefully not in GBF Christianity, but all over the world today, this is the most common Christian view on what election is because Christians cannot deny that the word election is in the Bible. But a lot of Christians resist its meaning, its ultimate meaning, because of the so called logical human implications, and they want to get away from that. So what do we do? We redefine our terms. We change the meaning. We water it down and we totally pollute the biblical doctrine and all of its beauty and mystery. And here's the most common view. I would not be surprised if this is the the view that you hold about election. It is not knowing in advance. Election is not God simply knowing something in advance. In other words, this is how it's typically played out. Some Christians say that, well, election is synonymous with the word foreknowledge. And foreknowledge simply means to know something ahead of time. So what happened was, in eternity past, God God the Father looked down the corridors of time, in eternity past, before creation, and He saw, because He's omniscient and He knows everything, He saw that some people would actually respond to the Gospel in time, and so the ones that He saw and knew would receive the Gospel, He decided to love them and elect those because they were the ones that were going to believe. So that is strictly based on God simply knowing. God didn't sovereignly choose them. He waited for a response based on his knowledge of seeing the future. Oh, oh, that guy's gonna believe. Oh, okay, and Sally's gonna believe. I'll oh, elect her and predestine her and choose her too. And Charlie, oh, he's gonna believe. I'll choose him. So that's strictly based on God's omniscience. That is insufficient. That is not the biblical doctrine of election. But that is probably the most common view of election in the evangelical church from what I've read, from the people I've talked to. But that is not what it is. Now, look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, Sam read that, but there are two times in chapter 1 of 1 Peter the word foreknowledge is used. And I just want to show you something. And based on your translation, whether you have the NIV or the New King James or the NASB, uh, they're going to translate very key words differently, and that messes everything up. But look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens or sojourners or pilgrims. Peter is writing to Christians, to believers, okay? Peter, the Apostle, writing to believers who are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithya, who are chosen. There it is. Who are elect. Peter, to believers who are elect. Elect. Chosen by God. Very clear. This is election. Well, when and how did God choose and elect them? Well, verse 2. NASB. Who are elect or chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And then some people say, well, there it is. See, foreknowledge. God does election based on knowing the future. Well, no, that's not all there is to it because the word foreknowledge does not just strictly mean knowing something ahead of time. It means more than that. It means God making a sovereign choice. It means God making a decision. It means God entering into willfully a very special, intimate relationship, a love relationship with somebody else. And that word there, foreknowledge, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, is a compound Greek word pro pro means beforehand, ahead of time. Pro-gnosco, where we get the word gnosis, the Gnostics, diagnosis, to know something. So pro to know something ahead of time, to know something in advance. That can be its meaning, but not always. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, many times that is not its meaning. Gnosco can mean love, to love someone. To have intimacy intimacy with someone. For example, the Greek Septuagint of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, verse 25 in the Greek, using the word gnosko, says that Adam knew Eve. Adam gnoskoed Eve. Adam gnoskoed his wife and she conceived. Let me say that again in case you didn't catch it. Adam knew Eve and she became pregnant and bore a son. Gnosko. It wasn't Adam. Oh yeah, I know that lady. Yeah, I married her about 700 years ago. Uh, no, that wasn't what it was talking about. No is a euphemism talking about the most, the deepest kind of personal intimacy with another human being. That's what it means. Jesus uses it the same way in Matthew chapter 7. Remember when he's talking and people go, Lord, Lord, at the judgment day. Did we not do miracles in your name and prophesy in your name? And Jesus said, uh, you're phonies. You didn't really believe. I never Gnosko, you. I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. You were never saved in the first place. So what this means, I would propose in the context, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2, the word foreknowledge means to love beforehand. It's the better translation. To intimately, passionately, willfully love beforehand, before time. God elected believers according to his forelove that he had at the foundation of the world. Well, that doesn't what it means. Yeah, it does, because look at verse 20. The exact same word is used in First Peter chapter 1, 19 and 20, where it refers to election, predestination, and reference to Christ. Wow. Exact same word, foreknowledge, prognosko. Look at 19 and 20. This is what Peter says that what God the Father thought about Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ was elected before the foundation of the world. by God's prognosko, his love of Christ before the foundation of the world called Him, selected Him, chose Him to be the Savior. Same word. It's not just God the Father knew Jesus. 19 and 20, But with precious blood as a, of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. What about Christ? Verse 20, For Christ was foreknown. There it is. NIV says Christ was chosen. Isn't that interesting? The NIV translates the exact same word in verse 2 as foreknowledge, and chooses to translate it as chosen in verse 20. It is the exact same word. They should be consistent. But there it is, foreloved, foreloved. Or you could say chosen, that's a great synonym. Jesus Christ was chosen by God the Father before the foundation of the world. God the Father set His love on Christ for a specific role He would fulfill as the Messiah before creation ever existed. That is election. It's not simply knowing in advance. Okay, let's go on. Uh, After the definition of election, we have the distortion of election, and then we have the biblical proof of election. Just biblical examples run by you real quick. Uh, I'm not going to read all of these, but just in reference to Abraham, I want you to think about that familiar guy. Genesis chapter 12, you can read about Abraham. But just so you know, the book of Joshua says, Abraham came from a family of idol worshipers. They were total pagans and unbelievers. They were an unworthy, sinful family, uh, condemned, ready to go to hell. There was nothing good innately, inherently, about Abraham and his family and his lineage. But Genesis 12, 11 and 12 tells us that by God's own sovereign pleasure, decided to elect, select, choose Abraham. He chose Abraham. He chose him for salvation. He chose him to become the father of Israel. He chose him to bless the rest of the world through Christ. That's election. God sovereignly chose, and He did this before the foundation of the world with respect to Abraham. The choosing of Abraham, the idol worshiper. By the way, God called Abraham when he was about 75 years old. He lived a pagan life for 74 years. God called him, elected him, chose him in life because of his decree in past time to be saved and to become the nation of Israel. Abraham, you can read the story. It wasn't based on anything good. Abraham did. He had nothing to offer. It was God's sovereign free will that chose Abraham To be the patriarch. Uh, Jacob, I do want to look at this example. Here's another example of election. You can go all throughout the Old Testament, by the way, of seeing God's selection and election of people. He he chooses all the time. Between the two sons of Cain and Abel, he chose Abel. Between the sons of Seth and his brothers, he chose Seth. Between Noah and all of his family, he chose Noah. And on and on it goes. Between all the twelve sons of Israel, God selected one very specifically for the promise. Uh, God chose the nation of Israel from all the other nations. So election is a part of the way God does things and implements His plan. It is His sovereign choice for His glorious purposes. And He did that with Jacob. By the way, if you look at Romans 9, this is fascinating. A great illustration of how election works. By the way, the context of Romans 9 is election. It is divine, sovereign, mysterious election. And Paul is laying this out, and it's like he's having a debate or an argument with a critic. Somebody there on his shoulder who is taking him to task with all these statements that he's making, and they are bantering back and forth with him saying, Paul, that's illogical. Paul, based on human logic, then this would be the conclusion. And they keep going back and forth in this dialogue. And it's about election and it's about Israel. And so the question was raised, well, I thought in the Old Testament it said that Israel was God's elect nation. Well, it does. Well, then the guy is saying, well, then how come God has abandoned Israel if they were elect? And Paul saying, he hasn't abandoned Israel. He hasn't abandoned the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. All the apostles were Jews. The first 3,000 Christians were Jews. God has not abandoned His elected Jews. The thing you need to understand is not everybody in the corporate nation of Israel was personally elect. Only some were elect within that group. And so that's his argument and that's what he's talking about. Sovereign individual election is the context of Roman 9. So go ahead and look at it. And so he's talking about Jacob here to illustrate it verses 10 through 13, starting at verse 10, and not only this, but there was Rebekah who was married to Isaac also when she had conceived. They had twins, so there are two babies in the womb according to the custom and the protocol of the day. The parents should have blessed in a special way the firstborn, the oldest son. But God said no. God bypassed protocol and said no, you will bless the one that I elect, the one that I choose. And that was the younger son. This is God's sovereign election. That's what He's talking about here. There were two babies, two boys in the womb. And the process of election happened like this. Verse 11, For though the twins were not yet born, that's key, in the womb they were elected by God. So it's not based on human will. Though the, the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. it is not God's election is not based on their merit, whether they do good or bad. God made the election while they were in the womb. So while they were in the woman had not done anything good or bad, and in order that, for the purpose of, God does election, in order that God's purpose according to His choice might stand. Choice, that means election. The purpose was in order that God's election might stand and overrule human will, ultimately. Not because of works that humans do in their lifetime, but because of God who calls. Because of God who elects. There it is. You can't get any clearer than that. Election is not based on what, some, what God sees somebody might do in the future or as He looks down the corridors of time and sees, oh, they're a worthy person. That isn't how it works. It's God's sovereign choice. Jacob. Pharaoh. He keeps going. Another illustration. Biblical proof of election. And um, that Pharaoh was not elect whereas others were. And even just the way Pharaoh lived his life was not in contrast to God's ultimate plan, starting at verse uh, verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God. Is there? May it never be. Boy, if God's choosing people to be saved, then He's an unjust, unfair God. This is unfair! That's what the guy's saying to Paul. Verse 15, Well, God said to Moses in the Old Testament, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That is God's sovereign decree and right as the Creator and as the Savior. That's election. Before creation, God decided He was going to rescue a few people. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Wow. Wow. Verse 16, So then it does not depend on the man or the human who wills, the choice of man ultimately, or the human who turns to God, but on God who has mercy. That's election. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, for God said, for this, for this very purpose, Pharaoh, I raised you up to demonstrate My power in you and that My name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Pharaoh was a bad man. He resisted God, but God it wasn't against God's plan. It was in sync with God's plan that Pharaoh would be raised up and be an evil man to fulfill God's purposes. God is sovereign. God is in control of all things, even wickedness that happens. That's the point. And wickedness and rebellion and people who make willful acts to resist God Do not resist God's plan. It doesn't foil His eternal plans. That's what He's saying about Pharaoh. Pharaoh couldn't foil my plans. I'm in charge. My plan will go on. Verse 18, So then God has mercy on whom He desires and He hardens whom He desires. By the way, it doesn't say He hardens them before the foundation of the world. When it says He hardens some people, you have to go to the book of Exodus and read about Pharaoh. When was Pharaoh hardened? Before the foundation of the world or while he was ruling as Pharaoh? It was while he was ruling ruling at Pharaoh. It's very clear. God told him to do something. Pharaoh, set my people free. Pharaoh basically said, forget you. And it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart through disobedience. And it was a process. And the more he hardened and resisted God, the harder he became. And Scripture also couples with that and says many times in Exodus that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That is an act of judgment. God says, fine. You want to keep resisting me and resisting me and resisting me and resisting my love, resisting my grace, resisting everything I send your way? Fine. You can have your sin. And God confirms someone in their sin. That's the hardening of God. That's what He's talking about. Not saying He hardened Pharaoh before the foundation of the world. Pharaoh was hardened because of his own willful acts of sin during his reign as king. Defying God every step of the way. Verse 19, Well, you will say then, why does God still find fault with anybody if He doesn't choose everybody to be saved? for who can resist His will? That's logic. That's human logic, isn't it? Human logic. What is our answer to human logic regarding election? Whoa, look at verse 20. It's kind of scary. Some of you might say, that's a very good point. Quite valid and erudite. Paul didn't say that. Verse 20, he said the contrary. On the contrary, who are you, O man? Wow, that is a rebuke. It is a divine rebuke. Who are you, human being? Puny! sinful, finite, obtuse human being. Who are you? This is what he's doing. It's harsh language. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God, the Creator, the Sovereign One, the Eternal, Infinite, Holy One? Did you know that some questions are not legitimate? That's good to remember when you're a parent with multiplicity of kids. Anyway. This is an illegitimate question. When you start impugning the very nature and goodness of God, that is an illegitimate question. I don't even entertain those kind of questions. Especially from skeptics who are not sincere and they don't want to know the truth. Notice in the Gospel of John, Jesus did the same thing. All these questions, right? From the Sadducees, the Pharisees. And it says in the text, they asked them questions to cause Him to stumble. And every time they asked Him a question, for the most part, Jesus did not answer their question, did He? He gave them the truth. Instead of answering their bogus question, who answers back to God, the thing molded, you human being, should not say to the molder, God the Creator, why did you make me like this? Wow. Will it? Or does not the potter, God the Creator, have the right over the clay? Some people would say no. But God is telling you, Christian, yeah, God has the right. He's the Creator. He's the Sovereign One. He is in charge. We must obey. You know what? I believe this only by faith. I believe this not by logic. I believe this only by faith. Does not the potter have the right over the clay to make uh, from the same lump all the human race? Some are honorable. They please God. They serve God. They believe in Christ. They honor Him. They end up going to heaven for all eternity. And then some human beings are common use and they end up worthless. God is not pleased with the death of the wicked. Sorrow's him, verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and put it on display and to make His power known, He endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He's talking about Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a human being. Pharaoh was a vessel that was prepared for destruction. When was he prepared? It doesn't say that he was prepared before the foundation of the world. It does not say he was prepared before the foundation of the world. The word is very specific with reference to Pharaoh. When was he prepared? Tidzo. Perfect passive. All it means is Pharaoh was prepared for destruction while he lived a disobedient life in rebellion to God. During the course of his lifetime, he prepared himself. The verb in reference to Pharaoh here is a passive verb. It means that God didn't do it directly. God allowed it to happen to Pharaoh. His home, he hardened his own self is what it means. Throughout his lifetime. this is not That did not happen before the foundation of the world. There's a huge contrast, though, in verse 23. So Pharaoh is talked about in verse 22. A guy who was not elect. He was arranged. He was fitted for his own destruction by his own sin during his lifetime in contrast to the elect, verse 23, who are chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be saved. Really? Yeah, that's what it means. Verse 23, and God did so in order that He might make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy. Those are the elect. Which God prepared beforehand. There it is. Very specific Greek words. Before the foundation of the world, God elected vessels of mercy that they might be saved because of His special love for them. So the elect were chosen before the foundation of the world. Those who were not elect, says, were prepared for destruction during the course of their lifetime because of their own willful, knowing disobedience. That is one of the most important passages. In the Bible on election, because very few passages in the Bible give us any theology whatsoever about the mechanics of election, Romans 9 is key. And the words Paul uses are very specific, very select, very distinct, very purposeful. And those two verbs are very different. Uh, And then biblical election examples, Jesus. Just some quotes out of the Gospel of John, short ones, I'll give them to you. This is election. Jesus believed in election. He taught on election. As a matter of fact, Jesus, you know what? He was involved in election. He is the Savior. He is God. Here are examples of election from Jesus' own mouth. Uh, John 5.21 The Son gives life to whom He wishes. The Son gives eternal life and salvation to whomever He desires. That is a willful, sovereign act of Jesus Himself. Whoever gets saved was chosen by Jesus. That's election. John 6.37 all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father elected, chose, decided to be saved before the foundation of the world gives to Jesus the Savior that they might be saved. That is election. John 6.37 Another one. John 13.18 Jesus talking to His disciples, His twelve apostles. He knows that Judas is a phony. He knows that Judas was never saved. He knows that Judas was the son of perdition. He knows that Judas was a phony. And He says this to the twelve apostles. Not all of you are belong to Me. Not all twelve of you belong to Me. Because I know you guys. And I know that Judas is a phony. And he says in 13.18, I know the ones I have chosen. Only 11 of you are saved and chosen and elect. It's election. And then finally, John 15.16, Jesus told his disciples that you did not choose me. I chose you. And if you are saved and a Christian today, say the same thing to you and me. God would say, I, "You did not choose me; I chose you." Well, but I believed. Yeah, you did. But I heard the gospel. Yeah, you did. I repented of my sin. Yeah, I did. Well, how does that work? I don't know. It's a miracle. It's a mystery. It's amazing. Believe it by faith. The Apostle Paul, Acts. I put that on the top of your notes because it's one of the clearest examples of election in the Bible. Acts 13.48, Paul on his missionary journey, preached the gospel, some heard, some believed, some got saved. And now when the Gentiles heard the gospel, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many had been appointed to eternal life. Wow! In eternity past. And as many had been appointed to eternal, uh, eternal life, believed in time. They were appointed in eternity past. They believed in time when they heard the gospel and were convicted by the Holy Spirit. That is an amazing verse. Then 2 Thessalonians 13, uh, chapter 2 says this. Paul is telling Christians, but we should always give thanks to God for you, Christians, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord. You are Christians. You got saved. Why should we be thankful? Well, because God has chosen you. And he's talking about election. You were chosen by God before the foundation of the world when He set His love on you, predestined you to be saved in time. God has chosen you from the beginning. There it is. From the beginning of time. God chose you. For salvation through sanctification by the Holy Spirit and faith. Notice we have a part in this. We believe. There's a human will that engages. God does not save us against our will, by the way. Very important. He saves us in conjunction with our will. Wow, how does that work? I don't know. It was for this God called you through the Gospel. God elected you before the foundation of the world, and yet you couldn't be saved apart from the Gospel when you heard it in this life and believed on it. How is that possible? I don't know in order that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go on to the candidates of election. I've already referred to most of these. Well, who is elect according to the Bible? Well, uh, number four, candidates of election. The Bible says that there are angels that are elect. These are the holy angels, the chosen angels. New American Standard, First Timothy 5.21, calls them the chosen angels. NIV calls them the elect angels. They were elect before the foundation of the world to be holy angels. They are preserved for all eternity. All other angels are demons. Who else was elect? Well, the nation of Israel was elect, called and chosen by God. Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 7, God is telling Israel, uh, why, why did I elect you and choose you among all the nations? Because you were great and more holy? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, you were small, puny, and pathetic. Despised by the world. Israel still is despised by the world. But I chose you anyway. I elected you anyway to be the apple of my eye. Election, the very specific word is used in Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 7. Isaiah 42 6 regarding the election of Israel, God simply says, I, Yahweh, have called you. I, Yahweh, have elected you. The nation of Israel. Wow. All believers are elect. All true Christians are elect. That's first 1 Peter 1, one and two. We looked at that. Romans eight, twenty nine and thirty says the same thing that those that God foreknew, he predestined those that he predestined. He called those that He called, He justified or saved during their lifetime, and those that He justified, He will glorify, or actually He glorified. So everybody that God elect before the foundation of the world will ultimately be glorified, which means all the elect will be saved, all the elect will persevere, all the elect are going to heaven, it is guaranteed. They will be glorified. Romans 8, 29 and 30. Those are the candidates. Oh, Israel, believers, and then finally Jesus, the elect one, which we already saw in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Jesus was elect by God the Father before the foundation of the world to come and willingly be the Savior. Jesus was not elect to be the Savior against His will. He wasn't resisting the Father in eternity past. He willingly, jointly complied to the plan. Yet He is referred to as an elect and chosen one by the Father. That's amazing. Do I believe it? Absolutely. How does it work? I don't know. Number five, the basis of election. It's not just God's... Foreknowledge, what some Christians would say, it's more than that. It's His foreknowledge and more than that. The basis of election is the nature of God. Letter A, God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Revelation 1.8, God says, I am the Almighty. Jesus says, I am the Almighty. Almighty means I have all power. I can do anything. Luke chapter 1, the angel said to Mary, nothing is impossible with God. That is omnipotence. That is all-powerful. God can do whatever He wants that is consistent with His nature. That's omnipotence. Uh, Also, the nature of God, the basis of election. B, God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows all things. Did you know, and I've mentioned this before, there's a huge movement in evangelical Christianity called open theism and all these other names. It says that God doesn't know the future. They try to tell us that, did you know that God is growing? And God is improving? And God is maturing? Yippee! No, not yippee. If God is improving, that means He's not perfect right now, and then we're in trouble. No, God knows everything. God knows everything. And God's omnipotence, His for, everything that He knows, the fact that He's omniscient, all plays into this amazing mystery called election. And finally, God is omnipotent, He is omniscient, and finally God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Isn't that an amazing verse? Wow! Every time I read Scott Varney's email, I just go, Wow! Not because of anything profound he said, but at the end of every one of his emails, he's got Psalm 115, verse 3. Wow! Cool! What are you getting all excited about, honey, says my wife? Well, I just read an email from Scott. Oh, that's cool. What do you say? Well, it's not what he said. It's the Bible. (laughs) Psalm 115, verse 3. God is sovereign. That is God's ultimate, free, sovereign unencumbered, determinative will to choose and do whatsoever He pleases for His glory. That's sovereignty. That is an awesome God. That is a mind-boggling Savior and Creator. That's the kind of God I want to worship and believe in. Which brings us to number six, the mystery of election. You are not going to answer all these questions about election. Now, if you're sitting there and your mind is running, if you're actually listening to what I'm saying, and there's some tension in your mind, and you've got your logic going, and you've got all these inconsistencies, that is not a bad thing, that is a good thing. That is a healthy thing. There needs to be divine tension. There needs to be mystery. When we're dealing with an infinite God as finite sinful people, there needs to be tension and mystery. There needs to be unanswered questions. It's a testimony to God's transcendence. So, three points regarding this mystery. We have limited information on many things, especially election. Deuteronomy 29.29 says this, the secret things, the secret truths, the secret doctrines, the secret mysteries... The secret revelations, the secret things about God, the secret things belong to the Lord and Him alone. In other words, God has not told us everything there is to know. Be content with that. Walk by faith, not by sight. That's what Corinthians says, Christian. The secret things belong to the Lord, but to those things which are revealed, so there are revealed things and unrevealed things, but to those things which are revealed, like in Scripture, they belong to us and our children forever. Be content with Scripture and what God has given us. Election is not natural or general revelation. It is special revelation. We only know it and believe it because God told us about it. Don't go beyond what He told us. Otherwise, you'll try to use human logic and you will dilute it, pollute it, mess it all up. So we have limited information. B, we also have limited understanding. 1 Corinthians 4, 6, by the way, said don't go beyond what is written. Don't go beyond Scripture on these issues. Don't ask questions that Scripture doesn't address or answer. It's futile. We have limited understanding. Isaiah 55.9 As finite creatures and as sinful creatures, our reasoning is finite. God says, For My thoughts are not your thoughts, human beings. My thoughts, as Creator God, are not your thoughts. Nor are My ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are My ways higher than your ways and My thoughts greater than your thoughts. Wow! Wow! So we gotta understand that distinction between us and the Creator God. But election, it's hard. It's hard to understand. I don't get it. It's confusing. It's frustrating. Yeah, I agree with you. So did Peter, the first Pope. Peter, 2 Timothy, or 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, he tells us. He says, man, I was reading, I was doing my devotions in Paul's epistles the other day. That guy is confusing. I'm not kidding. It's what it says, 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Man, I'm like the head apostle for three years. And Paul is writing about things I don't understand. I bet you he was talking about election. Because Paul wrote more on election than anybody in the New Testament. Paul did. And Peter admits, man, this is tough. This is tough to understand. And then Peter goes on to say, but people who don't uh, teach the scriptures accurately, they end up distorting it. Be careful. Don't distort the wonderful, mysterious doctrine of election because you don't have enough information. We do have enough information, we're just not satisfied sometimes. We have limited understanding. That's by God's will. And finally, we believe it by faith. I believe election by faith. I already told you that. The psalmist says in 139, verse 6, when considering all the ways and the words of God and the workings of God, he just kind of throws his hands up in the air and says, man, this knowledge of You, God, is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. It's frying my brain. My brain is going to explode. That's humility. I cannot Attain it. Job said the same thing at the end of his book. in Job, he just kind of gave up on the dialogue with God because God outdid him in the argument. And Job said, "Okay, I surrender. I give up. Man, I'm just going to put my hand over my mouth and and shut up because you are the Creator. You are the sovereign one. I repent in dustcloth and ashes. God, you are no. I am no match for you. That is humility. That needs to be our response as well. Second Corinthians 5:7. Christian, walk by faith." not by sight. How about this one? Walk by faith, not by logic. That's a good one. And I'm an apologetics philosophy professor. And I have zero confidence in human logic. Finally, uh, number seven, the motive for election. Ephesians chapter 1 just simply says, we were elected before the foundation of the world, predestined in love by God. Why? By virtue of God's grace and mercy. That's why. Not because he's a bad, unfair God, no, because he's a good, gracious, loving, saving God. Wonderful God. Again, election is always in the context of blessing for the believer, to give you security, confidence. That the devil cannot snatch you out of the hand of Christ if you know him, regardless of what's gone on in your life, regardless of the sin you have committed. You are secure in Christ forever by by virtue of your election. If you are predestined, you will be glorified. Amen? That's the motive for election. Not just for our good, because that is for our good, grace and mercy, but also for God's good is the reality and the motive of election. Ephesians 1.14, he concludes after referring to our election and predestination three or four times, the crescendo is ultimately, is for God's glory, for His good pleasure. That's the ultimate motive for anything in life. For God's glory. And someday in heaven, God will gather all the elect from all the corners of the earth throughout all history before Him They will all be resurrected in perfect, sinless, holy glory, bowing before the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, in all His glory, and before God the Father Himself, singing out, as they did in Revelation 5, honor, glory, power, praise be to You, Lord Jesus Christ, and to God our Father. All glory to this great and awesome Creator, Savior, God. All of His purposes will be fulfilled and what is the need for election? That's the last one I'm going to address here. The need for election is man's total depravity. The Bible is clear. Because of Adam and Eve, we inherited a sin nature. As a result, we were conceived in sin. We were born as sinners. We were born separated from God. We were not born children of God. We were born children of the devil, said Jesus in John chapter 8. We were born children of wrath and condemnation, says Ephesians chapter 2. We were born totally helpless and without hope, says the book of Ephesians. We were born satanically blinded and unable to understand the truth of God, says 2 Corinthians 4. 4. We could not save ourselves. We needed divine, supernatural, omnipotent, sovereign intervention to save our sinful souls. And that's what God did with election. For our good, by His grace, for His glory. A distinct and one of the greatest Christian and biblical truths.